can be turning in your Bible to First Peter chapter one. We are we are currently working our way through the first chapter of First Peter right now, and I think we're starting to get a get a handle on some of the themes that that Peter's starting to talk to us about, namely hope and joy, even in the midst of trials. That was a big topic last week. We talked about gold and how it's purified and sanctification and those kinds of things. Um, hope isn't based on your feelings. Hope isn't based on your outward circumstances either. Real biblical hope either. Because I, I think when we use the word hope, sometimes we don't use it the same way that the Bible uses it. Let me see if I can explain. When we say, well, we hope something's going to happen. Kids are thinking, man, I hope we're going to have pizza for lunch. They're not sure, right? Because they're not buying the pizza. So they don't know if they're having pizza for lunch or not. So we say, well, we hope something will happen. We desire a particular outcome, even though we're not 100% sure it's going to happen that way. That's not really the kind of hope that the Bible talks about. Biblical hope is really a certainty. It's something that brings stability. I I heard it said and read it this week that biblical hope is looking into the future with the full assurance that God will do what he promises he will do. Do do you see the difference? As Christians, we need to have that kind of hope. No matter what this life brings our way, we have full assurances looking forward to what God has promised he will do, he will Come through in. So our hope is settled on God's promises. Jesus' resurrected life, it's not settled on our own performance, on my desire for a particular outcome to, to come true, anything like that. And, and this, this kind of hope, understanding it and beginning to, to have that kind of hope in our lives is vital as Christians because Peter tells us, and we looked at this last week, that we are going to be grieved by various kinds of trials. It's coming. It will happen. Get used to it. But these trials, they have a purpose. They refine us. They purify us so that we might share in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And so this salvation process uh, and the joy that it produces in the Christian, it can't be just snuffed out by persecution. And I mean, we've already thought of the Christians in the Ukraine. War is on their doorstep. Um, we've, we heard of in Haiti, Christians captured and held captive for weeks. You can read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can read scriptures and you can see Christians persecuted. If their joy was built on the outward circumstances of life and how they felt, they would have given up hope. And so now we hear stories of incredible hope and we say, man, that is great. I want to, I want to be that kind of a person. This is, this is what, Christians are called to do. So may God be preparing us to suffer for his name's sake. And in that day, may we be found faithful by his grace. So our ultimate hope has to be settled on the finished work of Christ and his resurrection. Because if it's not, then those trials will tend to steal our joy. And we'll be tempted to think, when we look around at the world, we'll be tempted to think that it looks a little better than it really does. Than it really should look. And so this is what Peter goes on to say in verses 13 through 16 that I want to read together this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, and we'll have another word of prayer. Therefore, 
preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded sets your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Let's pray. Lord, there's a, a standard here that when we, we look at ourselves and then when we look at the standard, we see a major discrepancy. Lord, in, in a lot of ways, that's, that's true. We, we don't measure up to this standard of perfection, of holiness, of your holiness. We, we really don't in our own effort. And so, Lord, help us, if, if nothing else today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to abandon that attempt that we could work our way to perfection and work our way into your grace because that's not what your word tells us is the plan. And so, Lord, help us to see your goodness in a new, fresh way today. As a result, Lord, I pray that we would, as Jason mentioned, Lord, that we would build by your grace through your word, that we would build on the salvation that you've given us as an inheritance, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice the first word. In verse 13, therefore, okay, so in the English language, that's a a fairly common word. You guys have heard that word. What does it mean? Well, it means that we need to kind of think back to what was just said. So Peter is, is saying, now I'm about to tell you something. I'm about to reach a conclusion based on the things that I just said, okay? In light of the incredible salvation that God has prepared for his elect people, elect uh, exiles, he said in verse 2, because of the new identity that they have in Christ, now Peter's going to move into the practical application of what that looks like in a Christian's life. So imagine for a moment that a loved one of yours passes away and leaves you a bunch of money. Okay, lots of money. Now, some of us have like dreamed about that scenario. Like, what am I going to do if that happens? Uh, maybe we've even planned out some of the things that we would do with that money. Pay off our mortgages, car payments, maybe pay off our, our parents' mortgages. Some of us are, are paying off school debt long after we're out of school. Maybe we're going to donate some of that money to charities and to the church. Maybe we're going to put it in investments. Maybe we're just going to have a little fun with it. But what would you think and what would be said about the person who takes all that money that they receive as an inheritance. They didn't work for it. They just got it. What would you think about a person that gets that and then spends it on frivolous things with no thought to the future? Well, that's they're pretty short-sighted. Some of us might even say that they're foolish. We could say that with a large amount of money comes a large amount of responsibility. Now, I realize that this story sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Some of you, your minds just went right to the prodigal son who took his inheritance even before his father had died, demanded it, and then he went and he just blew it. And he wasted it on frivolous things. Then he comes home and is completely forgiven. Now understand that I think Jesus' parable here of the prodigal son, this is not permission to go and, he, and do as he did. That wasn't Jesus' point at all. The point wasn't to copy his behavior in wasting his inheritance, but that the forgiveness of the Father extends to foolish, broken people. So in that same kind of vein, if your plan, though, is to take this 
and live your life in the same way, you need to rethink your, your thought process here. If your plan is to just live however you want and then come back to God for forgiveness later on, then you've really misunderstood the gospel and I think are guilty of perverting the grace of God. What I said about perverting the grace of God sounds a little bit jarring. I, I get that. Listen to what Jude says in verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. Does this sound like the world we live in today? This is the attitude behind this idea that I'll just go and live however I want when I'm young. And then when I'm old and I've lived my life and I've done all the things that I wanted to do, I'll just come back to God because, you know, he forgives. That's perverting the grace of God and a misunderstanding of the gospel. The author of Hebrews reveals the ultimate result of this attitude in chapter 10. Listen to these verses. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of living God. Now, my intent is not to scare you this morning, but these verses should scare you a little bit. Let me go back to my point in bringing this up, saying it this way. With a great inheritance comes a great responsibility. For the Christian, though, this responsibility, it's not a burden. It's not burdensome. It's not like, oh, man, i gotta, I got to go do the right thing so I make God look good today. That's not our attitude. It's not burdensome. This is the working out of a Christian's salvation. This is the result of redeeming grace in their life. A commentator I read this week said, Such glorious privileges cannot be looked forward to without awakening a sense of corresponding duties. And for these, he would not have them be unprepared. Peter serves Christians greatly by explaining how to be prepared to live in light of such a great inheritance, in light of a world around us that is abusing God's grace, taking it for granted, not understanding it. So look back at verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. The ESV says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. And we, we get that, but if you've got a King James Version, it says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your minds. That's, that's a lot different, isn't it? Now, I actually think that that helps us understand the point that Peter is trying to get across better. Now, that language, gird up the loins of your minds, that might seem a little silly to us. We might not understand it fully. So let me help us understand it better. In the first century, people didn't dress the way that we do today. In that time and specific geographical location especially, both men and women wore long garments Even soldiers wore robes that a lot of times went below their knees. So when it came time to run into battle, I don't know if I've not really ever worn a lot that goes below my knees besides a pair of pants. Um, But if you try to run in a long skirt or something, I'm assuming, ladies, this is not an easy task. So if if you're a guy and you're going into battle and you've got this thing that's hanging below your knees, you don't want to be encumbered by that. So what they would do is they would take what was below their knees and they would fold it up and they would tuck it into their belt so that they could run, so that they could move, so they can get to where they needed to be. That was girding that thing. That's what that action was called. They would gird that thing. Now, Peter says, gird the loins of your minds. Gird them up. Peter uses this metaphor, 
I think, to challenge us as readers to think deeply. Get ready to think. Okay, that's gird up the loins of your minds. Get ready to move in your minds, okay? Now, I think that Christians specifically have sort of been slandered into saying that we don't care about science or that we don't care about thinking. I would say, though, that thinking is monumental. Thinking is huge. And that's why we encourage things like what our VBS centered around last summer about God's created world, how we think about that. That affects so many things, in fact, everything in our life. If you think wrongly about Jesus, you're going to think wrongly about everything. And so we have to think. We have to be people that think. And so sometimes Christians get a bad rap, and they think that we're anti-science or anti-intellectual or anti-educational, stuff like that. that is, that's really just untrue. If anyone values and seeks out truth, it's the Christian. It's a Christian community. Truth is paramount. The criteria for how we process what's happening in the world around us is really important, though. We call this our worldview. And you know what? Everybody has one. It involves this kind of lens that we see and experience the world through. And I'll just say this. Christians unapologetically filter the world and all of our human existence through the lens of Scripture. That has to be it. If it's your personal feelings, if it's what happened to your, your friend that got hurt in the church or felt abandoned by God, if you're basing how you view the world on anything else but the Word of God, then you're, you're, you're stalting, starting from a faulty premise. So in order to do this, we have to think deeply. R.C. Sproul was a guy who thought deeply. I appreciate a lot of his written works. He said it this way, Christians are called repeatedly in sacred scripture not to leave their minds in the parking lot when they enter church, but to awaken their minds so that they might think clearly and deeply about the things of God. I hope that's what you do when you arrive at church in the mornings on Sundays or whenever we gather for Bible study or prayer meeting. I hope that you don't just check your minds at the door and come in here and believe everything that you hear and not care about where it comes from. Check it out. Read for yourself. Study to show yourself approved, the Bible says. And this is precisely what Peter is telling us to do in verse 13. He said, gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for action. This is, as I've already mentioned, this has some military connotations, I think, to it. Get ready for battle, guys. Are we ready? Maybe to put it in terms of today, we would say, it's, it's, ready, it's time to roll up your sleeves. Kids, you know what that means? You're going to get your hands dirty So you're going to roll up your sleeves, get to work, be ready to put in some effort, prepare yourself for this job. And then right after that, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded goes right along with this. Now, I think this has actually fairly little to do with alcohol in particular when he talks about being sober-minded. I think it has little to do with that and more to do with avoiding any form of mental or spiritual loss of self-control. Commentator Edmund Hybert says that being sober-minded is an attitude of self-discipline that avoids the extremes. I think that's good. Yeah, don't get caught up in things that would inhibit your ability to think clearly, to think deeply. But also be sober-minded in remaining disengaged from the anxious concerns of the world. You may not have a problem with alcohol. Fantastic. But maybe you have a problem with worry. 
Don't be intoxicated with the cares of this life. Don't be lulled to sleep by the false doctrines, which in, in essence render you incapable of proper thinking and living in general. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that a person is saved simply because they think properly about God. Intellectual assent is not the same thing as genuine belief, but I do believe that we can't love God passionately if we know nothing about him. And if that's our hope as a Christian, then we have to be ready to be sober-minded and to think deeply. Prepare your minds for action. Think clearly. Free yourself from things that would inhibit you from doing that. What does Peter say we should do? Continue on in verse 13. Now that you're ready, you're sober-minded, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we've already talked about hope in our time in Peter so far. So where does Peter tell us to put that hope? Fully on the grace of God. He says, set it fully on the grace of God. Your salvation and your inheritance don't rest on your righteousness or work, but on God's grace. That should cause rejoicing in our hearts. Your hope as a Christian should be placed solely on the grace of God and nothing else. Peter has already talked about grace. Glance back at verse 2. This grace, he said, is multiplied to Christians. He prayed that it would be in verse 10. He said that this grace was something that the prophets prophesied about. And now he goes even further into this grace. He says, uh, writing of the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus comes again, I appreciate how another pastor put it. David Gusick says, grace isn't just for the past when we first gave our lives to Jesus. It isn't only for the present where we live each moment standing in his grace. It's also for the future when grace will be brought to us. God has only just begun to show us the riches of his grace. What a cool thought. It's not just for the moment of your salvation. It's not just for your sanctification between now and eternity. It's There's something of his grace to look forward to when Jesus comes again. And as believers, I pray that we do look forward to that. Now, the only way on that day when the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's how Peter puts it, the only way that Christians stand with confidence on that day is because of God's grace. That can sometimes be talked about as unmerited favor. We don't deserve, we don't deserve this sort of thing, and God so freely gives it. Now look at verse 14. Peter says to set your hope fully on the grace of God, and then he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. Now think about that term, obedient children, with me for a moment. If... If you turn to your spouse and you asked them, does this describe me? Am I an obedient child to the Lord? What might their response be? Would they say, yeah, you are an obedient child to God? Or would they maybe not say much at all? I think the, the word obedient here is important. It means to be submissive or compliant or one of the definitions I really like is attentive that's good. Do you know any attentive children? I, I can think of a handful or more in our church body of children that I would consider attentive. These kids are respectful. They're cooperative. They're actively looking for ways to assist and to serve. They aren't always needing to be told what to do. They're self-starters. They're already looking for ways to help. But unfortunately, that isn't the mindset of most kids, is it? And I would say even more unfortunately, that isn't the mindset of a lot of adults, is it? You guys have heard the term peer pressure before, right? It's possible 
to be affected by positive peer pressure, but that's not usually why we use that term. Most of the time, peer pressure really influences kids, young people, but even adults can be affected by this in a lot of negative ways. It's Peer pressure is, is when you do something that the people around you are doing because you want to be accepted and valued by those people. Sometimes we say you cave to peer pressure, you fall into peer pressure. The Bible uses the word conform to describe this kind of idea. Now notice the correlation that Peter makes between kids and conforming. I think this is kind of important. There's pressure, especially for kids, especially for teenagers to conform. Parents, adults, grandparents, we can watch the news and recognize pretty quickly there are a lot of pressures on our kids that weren't there when we were growing up. There's a lot of pressure for kids to conform, to bend to peer pressure, to fall in line with whatever everybody else is saying around them. But Peter is crystal clear in these verses, right? What does he say? Do not be conformed. Don't be conformed. I I would bet that this phrase sounds familiar to you. Romans chapter 12, beginning of that chapter, specifically verse 2. Paul has just spent several chapters in Romans talking and describing and teaching in great detail about the doctrines of grace. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 12, do not be conformed, same phrase, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Paul in Romans chapter 12. So Paul and Peter use the exact same phrase, the same wording. Guys, it's not a coincidence. It's the same message that we're hearing. This is one of those things then that we need to be prepared to think deeply about to be sober-minded about. Both Peter and Paul see this process of sanctification as the result of a mindset that is different from the mindset of the world around us. If you're going to think like a Christian, you can't think like the world still. That's, That's about as simple as I can say it. This goes to Peter's use of the term exiles in verse 1. And and my, my, use of the word worldview earlier, it's changed. It's different. Christians don't process the events of life the same way that we did before we were saved. It would seem that this is a change, though, that even many grown-ups struggle to learn because Peter tells his readers, start acting differently. Even as adults, start acting and thinking differently. Not as children who don't know who they are, who often give in to peer pressure, but as members of the family of God who embrace their new identity in Christ and resist their old nature. He says, don't conform to the world around you. Don't cave to that peer pressure. It's so easy to do. But understand that that's not what God would have for you, whether you're a kid, a teenager, or an adult. Do not conform. Now, when Paul and Peter say this, and when I say this today, do not conform, I'm... I'm not suggesting this in a political kind of a sense, okay? Though there may be a time for that. Uh, I don't suggest this in a political sense now because that's not what he's getting at. You know, we're not raising our fists in rebellion to the establishment or any kind of thing like that at this point. He's saying don't be conformed, what? To the passions of your former ignorance. This is your old nature. That old mindset, the lens in which you looked through the events of life and the world around you, this is how you responded to situations before you were, you were redeemed and set free the passions of your former ignorance. So there's a time 
in every Christian's life before Christ when they just freely conform to the passions of their flesh. This feels good. Go ahead. This seems like it's right. It might hurt this person. I'm going to do it anyway. We just freely give in to the things that we want to do. You didn't understand or care to understand the effect that your sin has on God. You were content to live for yourself with just little care about how your actions affected other people. And this is what Peter calls former ignorance. Their passions were different in that former ignorance. They were completely self-focused. And here's the lie that the world tells us that our sinful nature would like us to believe. Everybody else is doing it must be right. I know that sounds trivial or that sounds like I'm simplifying it too much, but that's really what it is. It's peer pressure. Everybody else is doing it, so it must be okay. It must be right. It's not a big deal. Everybody else, kids, have you ever said that to your parents? Everybody else is doing it. It's not a big deal. Guys, it is a big deal. We were just ignorant to the truth about our sin. But as a Christian, we're ignorant to that no longer because we've seen Christ on the cross. We've seen the extent that he would go we also see the effect of our sin. It can't just be a, everybody else is doing it, it's okay kind of a thing. All the way back in the 18th century, John Gill says this, to be conformed or fashioned, that's the word the King James Version uses, to be conformed or fashioned to the world is to be fashioned to the lusts of it. And to be fashioned to the lusts of it is to indulge them, to make provision for them and to obey them, to live and walk in them which should not be done by the children of God who profess themselves to be obedient of the gospel, which teaches otherwise. What are you professing? Are you professing Christ? Professing the gospel, salvation? Then we can no longer walk in the ways of the world. We cannot live that way any longer. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. And if that's true, then Jesus is your Lord and Master. And if He's your Lord and your Master, then you are to obey Him rather than the impulses of your flesh or the patterns of the world around you. Peter goes on, verses 15 and 16, to give the proper mindset for the Christian here. He says this, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And that, those are passages that were already read this morning from Leviticus. Let me read one more from chapter 11, 44 and 45. Actually, this is a repeat of what Jordan read. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. We'll come back to that word consecrate. And be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now this comes at the end of a chapter in Leviticus that was focused on, specifically on rules about clean and unclean, specifically animals. We are 100% right to insist on the holiness of God in the sense that he's pure. He's 100% pure. By his very nature, he is undefiled. He is without fault. He is without error. There's not even the tiniest sliver of darkness or shadow in him. We're also 100% right to insist on the holiness of God in another sense, his transcendent majesty. Let me talk about that for just a minute. Now, over the years, scholars have used some other words to kind of describe that. And they're sort of strange words, but it's about the best we could come up with. It's God's otherness. 
his apartness. He's not the same. God is totally different than anything else in created order. And there are, there are sects of people that call themselves believers that, that believe that Christians and God are all the same being. God is just transcended to a higher plane. And that once we obey enough or once we die, we'll reach the same kind of plane. That's not what the Bible is teaching. It's not what I'm saying here this morning. God is different. He's not just a guy, but better. He's God. He's different. Now, in the Old Testament, especially, the word holy was used maybe a little differently than what we would use it as. We use it more in the moral purity aspect of it, and that's true. But in the Old Testament, it was used more to talk about when God consecrated something. When he set it apart, he set apart a people or a place or even a period of time because it was supposed to be different set apart. And you could see from what we read in Leviticus 11 and what Peter is quoting here, the Israelites, God's people, were not supposed to look and act like the people around them. They were supposed to be distinct and different. And remember, this is going all along with what Peter calls Christians right at the beginning in verse 1, it is, elect exiles. This is not your home. You're not supposed to look at home here. You're supposed to look different and act different and speak and think differently. God's people are special. Peter uses the word holy. I think that's the point of Leviticus 11. He, he calls himself, he talks about how he's the God who called them up out of Egypt. Why do you think he brings that up? Because Egypt was full of other gods. Some scholars believe that's what the ten plagues were, were directly addressing. Ten different gods in Egypt. And God's saying, I'm not like those gods. I brought you up out of those because I'm different. And now, guess what? You're supposed to be different because you're supposed to look like me. God designed a people who would be known by his name to be like him. So I think the main idea that Peter means by bringing up God's holiness here isn't necessarily moral purity, though that's true. But God's otherness, his apartness, he's different and he's called his people to be different. Again, R.C. Sproul says, Just as God is different from the world, so are we. As his children and heirs of the inheritance set before us in heaven, we're supposed to be different from the world. Our inheritance isn't the same. What we look forward to is different than the world. That characterizes our lives as well. Think about what, the, what characterizes the world around us. Lust. Ignorance. In fact, Christian, your life was characterized by that same thing at one point. But now the reborn child of God isn't known for those things anymore. They're known for their obedience and their holiness. Guys, this is an awfully high standard. That fact is not lost on me. It's the highest standard that exists. Now, I imagine that if I asked for a show of hands on who feels that they could reach or have reached this standard of perfect holiness, perfect set-apartness, I don't think any hands would be raised. So where does that leave us then? Asking questions like, man, the bar is set so high, I don't think I'll ever get there. Maybe you even want to, but you recognize your own heart and you say, why even try? Have you ever been there? Why even, this is so hard, why even try? I've blown it too many times. Why keep trying when I know I'm just gonna fail again? Remember, holiness 
to Christians means that you have been set apart for an honorable, honorable use. That's what consecrated means. God has set you apart for honorable use. Remember too that it was the Lord who took the initiative to pull you out of your former ignorance. He saved you. He cleansed you. He set you apart for righteousness. If you've believed in Christ for salvation, you've been washed by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and set apart from the world for godliness. Turn in your Bible to Titus chapter 3. Look at Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 7. Follow along with me. These are incredible verses, especially thinking about what we've just read in 1 Peter 1. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Believer, God has been preparing you to share in this inheritance, but it's not because of your good works. It's by his own mercy. Look back at that verse. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy. That's it. That's how it happened. You're not going to keep it any other way. It's still by his own mercy. Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. These verses from Titus talk a lot about that too. Right at the beginning, you are a slave. It says slaves to various passions. Now, I know none of us want to consider ourselves that, but you are currently a slave to chasing after your own passions and pleasures, which when you're not regenerate in heart, when you've not been born again, that doesn't sound so bad. You just get to indulge freely whatever you want to do. The problem is there's a judgment day. And every person will stand before God as judge. And he judges right. But what do these verses say? These verses give us hope. His goodness and loving kindness has appeared to you. If you're here without Christ, this is today you're hearing this. I don't know about for the first time. Maybe it's the 50th time, 500th time. But look at these verses. His goodness and loving kindness has appeared to you in Christ Jesus as the crucified and risen Savior. And he was crucified even though he'd done no wrong. He took your place in that sense. He's risen by the power of God that now lives in and gives power to his born-again children. His mercy extends to people even today. People who recognize their great need and who turn by faith to this crucified but risen Savior. Now, the gospel truth is that God demands perfect holiness for every person that would enter heaven. That's the standard. It's just as much true that in Jesus today, you can, as these verses tell us, you can be justified by His grace, set apart by Him and for Him, and you can become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is all God's doing by his mercy. And so if that describes you this morning, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing your days in anger and envy, hated by others and hating one another, your life can be changed. 
by the goodness of God. That's what it says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He can save you, wash you in the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, pour out richly his love through Jesus Christ so that being justified by his grace, you might also become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This inheritance that Peter is talking about, it's the same inheritance that Jude is talking about, same inheritance that Titus is talking about. And God has made a way for you to share in it through Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, what an inheritance we have. And the more that we we read about it, the more that we study about it, uh, the more that we think deeply about it, Lord, I pray that we would be more and more excited about it. Because we, we get excited about things on this earth. And some things are worth getting exciting about. The, the birth of a, a loved a little child. Lord, the marriage of a man and woman who want to please God and how they live together. Love each other. The salvation of a sinner. Lord, all these things are worth celebrating, but we tend to celebrate a lot lesser things. Lord, I pray that as we think and think deeply on inheritance and on holiness, Lord, that we might see that you have been preparing your people for this. Now, I can look in the mirror and it's very evident that I have not measured up morally to your law. And I know everyone here feels the same, Lord. And and I would pray that that would not cause us to despair, but instead it would cause us to look at the cross yet again and see how Jesus was perfect is perfect and he died in my place so that I wouldn't have to be in that moment but Lord for all those whom you have justified you are sanctifying and will one day glorify and so Lord it is uh, it is not always an easy process of, of fire and being molded to the image of your son Lord but I pray that in the difficulties of our life we would see that they are accomplishing a far greater purpose our holiness so that we might resemble Christ, that we might be your people known by your name who act and look and talk like you. Bring that about in our hearts, Lord. And when we don't measure up, renew us again in our minds. Help us to be that living sacrifice over and over. Help us not to conform to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will be able to test and discern what your pleasing, good and pleasing perfect will is so that we might glorify you in all things. In Christ's name I pray, amen.